By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. What, what's that like sitting at the table with someone who's just offered you 35 million quid? Weirdly, I think because I, it, it wasn't something like I won the lottery, so one minute I didn't know it was coming, next minute I did. It, this has been building for many a year. I had this vision when I was eight. I had this vision for the last 10 years of becoming this position. So it just felt like part of the process. And that sounds quite strange, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't, I didn't go out and buy a new car. I didn't do anything extravagant. It was, I just, it was quite a, it's a surreal moment. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, the podcast that delves into the minds of entrepreneurs, creators, and other inspiring people to uncover their journeys towards finding joy and fulfillment at work and in life. My name is Ali, and in each episode, I chat to my guests about the philosophies, strategies, and tools that have helped them along the path to living a life of happiness and meaning. In this week's episode of Deep Dive, I sit down with award-winning British entrepreneur Oliver Cookson. Oliver left school aged 16 with just one GCSE and went on to become one of the UK's leading self-made millionaires after he founded the sports nutrition business MyProtein and later sold it in 2011. Earlier this year, Oliver released his book Bootstrap Your Life, where he writes about his experiences launching MyProtein with a £500 overdraft and scaling the company into the number one sports nutrition brand in Europe. Looking back then, I was very much in the moment. I was just living in the moment. And obviously that is the only way to be successful. You hear anyone saying it today, mm-hmm. any sports stars, you just take game by game, set by set, yep. moment by moment. In the conversation, we discussed the story of MyProtein from the early days right up until the sale, covering the challenges that come with being an entrepreneur, his mindset, and how we sometimes have to roll with the punches. Mental health of an entrepreneur yeah. is something that gets overlooked. And look, we, Everyone thinks we're all strong and we're all okay and we're making money and all the rest of it. Not, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So please feel free to grab a cup of tea and enjoy the conversation. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us and for inviting us to your place in Monaco. Thank you, Ali, and thanks to your team as well. No, my pleasure. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool that we're we're, we're here for a couple of days. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask, what prompted you to move to Monaco? Okay. Well, not the obvious question, which or answer everyone everyone says. Look, there's a few different things. A lot of my friends still work nine till five, so to speak. So I was finding myself kicking around at home in England mm. um, on my own and. Also, I just fancy some, I've always wanted to live somewhere abroad where a bit of sun near the sea. So I did my research and Monaco was, was top of the list. Look, it's central to Europe. There's obviously business benefits of being here as well. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful climate, it's secure and it's yeah. safe. What, what kind of businesses are you into these days? Because we'll, we'll talk about the story from my protein from the yeah. beginning to the end. But I'm curious, like, because you sold it about seven years ago, was it? Yeah, a bit more. Or yeah, about nine, nine years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more, actually. But yeah, nine or ten years ago, I sold my protein. Uh, but I was on the hook, the board of the Hook Group then. And I also ran another business, um, which is another online business called Monaco. Um, but I subsequently sold that. Not for as much as my protein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I'm honest completely, I, like, I didn't really have the desire, the drive, the dedication to jump out of bed in the morning and yeah. you know get the cold face. So I thought I could sit back and watch the business from a far more of a delegation sort of approach. I had a management team from day one, so completely different to my protein, and then sort of manage it more remotely, maybe do a few days a week, but 
when it comes to cook, when when thrust comes to courts, cut comes to thrust, it's it doesn't work. You need to be there. You need to be driving it from the front in an early stage business. Yeah, because I guess kind of with my protein, then it sounded like from from the early days of what's been going on in in the book, it sounded like you were very very involved, like sixteen hour days, that whole shebang. <laughs> what, what was that like in in the early days for you when? when you were getting this off the ground? Yeah, look, it, it, it's, it's not, I know it's a cliche, but it's the actual truth. To actually, to actually start a business and work full-time, which I was doing as a web developer at the time, so I was doing, you know, doing an eight, nine, ten-hour day, typically in the, in the working day, plus then building the own website, building the website, because back then it wasn't WordPress, it wasn't Shopify and all these things. So I built the website literally in Notepad with ColdFusion, MySQL, Old HTML, <laughs> yeah. So I did it from the, literally from the ground up, which was a you know which was a big task in itself, um, completely custom. There's no, no no frameworks, and then obviously did all of the manufacturing ourselves or me. Yeah. <laughs> did have, literally there wasn't anything in the business we didn't I didn't do. So to do a full time job and that at the same time, it's it's literally impossible to do it in less than sixteen hours days. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So like I I get a lot of messages from from students mostly or people who are newly in jobs and I think a lot of people these days have this thing of I want my job to feel meaningful I want to have impact and stuff and when you're a 21 recent grad in in a new job it's very hard to find a job that's actually meaningful and impactful and stuff like that absolutely and so there's this idea people have of hey I'm I'm going to quit my job and start a startup um how how would you advise someone who's like maybe someone who's 21 just graduated uni not really enjoying their job and has an idea for something whether about, about whether they should quit their job versus kind of do that that overlappy thing that you were doing where it's like you've got the job mm. and you're doing your side hustle well i can only advise what i did otherwise that would be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so look i at that age i didn't have much money um, i was my salary was around 25,000 30,000 a year which is you know which is obviously great but we're talking 15 years ago here mm. so obviously inflation has moved on um, and i bought my first house I was three times my salary, so it was around ninety thousand my, my my first house. So I was, it was as high as you could go back then. I'm not sure where we are today, mortgages, but three times your salary was the loan to value. So, um, so I was a bit, I was a bit um, risk averse. So I thought I believed in the idea, but I was always cautious and I didn't. I do calculated risks. I was 23, so I was certainly not not um, not mature. I didn't have any backing from my mother, my father. They where it's more working class jobs, didn't have any capital to expend, had no friends, no mentors, no investors. So it was really going out there. So I would advise if I was a student in that position, which typically would be in a similar position, I'd advise just doing a bit of an MVP, a minimal viable product, getting it out there, which is what I did effectively, but before MVP was a thing, getting it out there. There's tons of useful info out there on MVPs. If you Google it, I'm sure you've maybe covered it in the past get a, get a test product out there and you'll know pretty quickly if there is some traction and if there is then you can do the considerations of leaving uni but that's a big a big consideration yeah um but do something while you're at uni still look you, you know if you're working 10 hours a day at uni or whatever the hours you did you do there's enough hours in a day to do an mvp hmm. interesting so when it came to my protein, you tell the story in a really interesting way in the book um, about how you first had the idea. I wonder if, well, obviously we'll put a link to the, in, to the book in the video description, Thank but you. for the people who aren't familiar with the story, sure. how did you have the idea to start a 
powdered protein brand. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. pretty, it's pretty random. <laughs> it is, it is random. However, saying that it wasn't random for me because I was a user of the products, obviously not my protein, but I was a user of uh, Maximuscle, which was the leading product in, in, in UK at the time. Yeah. It was a retail product. So uh, Maximuscle was effectively the, the sports nutrition go-to brand um, in the UK. I, so rolling back slightly, I was in, I was, um, I was into fitness um, and I was since I was around 16, 17. And as you progress through the fit, fitness chain, you then got into the, um, the, the nutrition side of it. And, and, and again, as part of the nutrition chain, you then find the supplement side because you can't get enough nutrition from food as you need to, to maximize your gains. Yeah. And I was a bodybuilder, if you like, back then. Not, not as, I, I enjoyed myself on the weekend too much, so I wasn't fully strict. Um, but back then, it was, uh, but certainly Monday to Friday, I was very, very anal, if I can say that, very precise on my, what I trained, on what the weight. And so naturally through that, supplements become part and parcel of the everyday life of a bodybuilder. So I was using a um, product by Maxi Muscle, a whey protein product. And it was, it was a, just a, a eureka moment, as, as the chapter in the book says. And, it's, and I did this systematically with probably 100 plus products before I did it with the protein products. I, it was a positive habit I had where I broke it down and I tried to see if I could do it better. I knew I believed in myself, I believed in um, my web skills, and I believed in, what it's put, and I believed in the, the web itself. This was 2002, 2003. I believed that I put a product on, online, vertically integrated, it was its own brand, it had the right uh, economics behind it. I could sell it, I believed in myself to do that. Um, so so I, I, uh, the positive habit I had was to actually break the product down. And one day I was sat in my, my kitchen, my mum's kitchen of actually, and I was making my bedtime shake. I think it was a Thursday night. And I can remember it vividly. And I said, what is actually whey protein? And it just sort of came to me because I did it systematically, as I said. Um, and it, I looked on the back of the ingredients and it said whey protein, flavoring, sweetener. Um, some of her fillers and vitamins and whatnot. And then I, I didn't actually know what whey protein was. Um, I don't know if I was, I'm alone on that, but back then it was actually a byproduct not that many years before, maybe a decade before that was being thrown away. Um, no pun intended. So whey protein is effectively... <laughs> <laughs> I just got that <laughs> No, whey protein is actually a byproduct of cheese. So when you make cheese, you then, the, the cheese floats to the top and the, the, the liquid at the bottom is whey. Whey's and curds, as the old nursery rhyme says. Mm. So if you, uh, someone once found out that the, the whey protein is very, very high in protein, and if you filter it enough, it becomes a highly bioavailable source of protein. It's used in baby foods and, of course, whey protein powder for sports nutrition. After doing that research, then I found, uh, I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. I wonder where you get whey from. So I found some dairies who make cheese. Uh, I went through the cycle of uh, asking lots and lots of them. But in short, I found out it was £3 a kilo to buy whey protein, the raw material. Um, and then, um, yeah, I did my maths, basically whey protein with flavoring sweeteners. I could make the product for about five, six pounds a kilo, and it was being sold retail for about 30 pounds for two pounds, which is, um, which is just less than a kilo. Wow. Okay. 908 grams. Yeah. 
So, so I thought there's some margin in that. Okay. So Maxi Muscle and stuff, they, they were already selling whey protein. Correct. And so it's not like you reinvented the wheel by just suddenly discovering whey protein was a thing. It was more like, hang on, I can do this better and I can do it cheaper and I can Absolutely. go direct to consumer. Absolutely. So the, the, obviously the key, the key angle, the, the key USPs, which are obviously absolutely essential. When everyone yeah. says, oh, I've got a new business, what is your USP? It is, you know, it's fundamental. If you can have multiple USPs, better so look there's people selling whey protein i'm not trying to profess i invented whey protein absolutely not this was done for maybe maybe five six seven years before and in america for longer mm. um but what no one was doing was they were selling it online as a brand mm. a vertically integrated brand so i own cow to customer <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so so effectively straight from the dairy uh, into into our plan, we, we we blended it. It wasn't a big manufacturing process. It was more blending powders, adding flavorings, and then we sold it direct to the consumer. We did all the fulfillment and then all of the aftercare, customer service, yeah. etc. That would have been quite like trailblazing in back in two thousand and two, where you know ex- accepting payments on the internet only became trivial in like twenty twelve when Stripe came along. <laughs> so like how uh, how how do, how did you go about building? all of that in the days where we didn't have WordPress and Shopify and WooCommerce and all the other stuff. Yeah. Look, obviously that was a big barrier to entry, to be honest. And I was fortunate enough that I've come from a tech background, a, a personally tra- a self-trained uh, tech background. Mm. Um, but my, I was, I, I, I actually, when I left school at 16, I had a, a year of, of, of milling around doing not very much productive. And then I had a wake up call time to get your, your arse in gear, if I can say that. And, um, the the I, I, what jumped out at me i tried the academic study route ali but it was it wasn't for me i was i don't know i don't learn that way and i believe that's a behavioral um uh, a behavioral thing a, a learning disability in some some way for me it's not how i learn i learn very much on on the job so i tried uh, i didn't do very well at school i got one gcse um, and I, it wasn't through lack of lack of care. It was through lack of focus and lack of. It wasn't engaging with me. Yeah. So that's something I really want to try and champion at some point in the future. Because I think there's, there's not one way to skin a cat in terms of uh, in terms of education. Secondly, I tried um, college, but I knew I went to IT at college. But I I don't want to sound big headed or cocky here. But I. I said to the teacher, look, I believe I know this. Can I go into the, the, the higher class, the higher form? There's two, there's lower and upper IT. He says, no, you're not good enough. You're in the lower. But I, before that, I'd been building computers from ground up and yeah. doing, working with um, working computers as well. So I knew everything. I wasn't, so I just said, look, this is a waste of my time. And one thing I hate doing is wasting time. So I left college, had the year of milling around, and then I walked past a, uh, back then it was shop fronts with modern apprenticeship opportunities right. which i'm not sure they'd still do modern apprenticeships these days it's, it's effectively working within a company where um where you learn on a job but do a day at college every week so it's like and then you come out of an mvq level three which is equivalent to an a level so i i went right this is computer development junior programmer working for a company making ide drivers which basically make industrial machines talk to each other which is probably the most boring thing you can develop in the world but i went there i went in at 16 or 17 and i was making i was doing the first copying doing um making cups of tea and doing all of the all of the things you expect a junior apprentice to do what i did learn there which was absolutely key was the, the dynamics of office politics 
And that is so, so important. So I learned how different people engage with each other and what what's expected and just the way that the, the, the dynamics of an office flow. And it taught me so much. And then I learned how to start developing there more professionally. And that is when someone introduced me to the World Wide Web. Yeah. And then I, my mind was blown. So from, from then, which was about 97, I was starting to, I, built, I bought a book of how to make websites. And I literally taught myself Perl, I think the language was, JavaScript, HTML, and later Java, and then finally ColdFusion and MySQL. Um, and, but websites, so I was building websites for like seven years before I started my protein in 2003. Mm. I worked on BBC, jessips.com, and quite a few other websites. We're gonna take a very quick break to introduce our sponsor for this episode, and that is Brilliant. I've been using Brilliant for the last two plus years. They're a fantastic platform for learning maths, science, and computer science with engaging and interactive online courses. And the great thing about Brilliant is that they really teach stuff from a very first principles-based approach. It's almost like the way that we were taught in places like Oxford and Cambridge, where you learn a concept and then you apply the concept to an interesting problem rather than just being spoon-fed stuff like we initially learned in school. My favorite courses on Brilliant are the computer science ones. Uh, as some of you guys might know, I was torn between applying to medicine and computer science. I went for medicine in the end, but I always had an affinity to computer science and taking the courses on Brilliant, like their introduction to algorithms and their introduction to Python, really helped me get more of a grasp of computer science than I've ever had before. It's also great for learning how to code, which is an incredibly useful skill to have, especially if you want to start a business. And I attribute like 98% of my business success to the fact that I learned how to code when I was in secondary school. So if you want to check out the courses on math, science, and computer science, then head over to brilliant.org forward slash deep dive. And the first 200 people to sign up with that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So thank you, Brilliant, for sponsoring this episode. It's, a, it's so interesting how for a lot of entrepreneurs, they got into it through the web design route. Yeah. So even um, Ben Francis, uh, the Gymshark guy who I was in, interviewed a few weeks ago, oh, no, he got to start making websites and building like an iPhone app on uh, an iOS app about like uh, fitness. Mm. And even for me, like obviously I'm not in the same league of like success as you and Ben are, but I got my start through freelance web design when I was in school. And so I'd been making websites for seven years before I got to uni. Uh, and at that point when I had an idea for a business that actually worked, I was able to make a website around it and then market it nationally. It was a business that helped people get into med school. And I think if I didn't know how to make websites, if I hadn't been trying to make these crappy business ideas for the last seven years, I would have had the idea for, oh, you know, someone should make, should, should help people get into med school. And it would, have stopped, it would have stopped there. I wouldn't have been able to take it forward or I would have had to, had to pay thousands, which I didn't have to hire a company to make a website. Absolutely. It would have killed, the, it, killed it dead. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, um, look, there's, that is one of the key things which, which I believe was a key, key barrier to entry back, to, back then in 2003-04 for competitors. To make a website back in 2004, there was none of those pop-up mm. websites, Shopify or, or WooCommerce, whatever there is. I, you, know, you had to build it or you had to spend uh, you know, tens of thousands of pounds on, on, a, on a development house making a website, which is obviously a big barrier to entry, something I didn't have. Um, but yeah, it was it was a lot more primitive back then. But we did we did take credit card payments. Yeah. There was there was uh, there was that there was uh, I think PayPal was around then as well. I think that came into our payment track a bit later on. I'm not sure if it was actually. How did you take credit card payments in 2000 and 2003? PSP Payment Service Provider, which is okay. the same now. So I integrated into SagePay at the time. Oh, it was 
called. Yeah. Um, we, I integrated, so we did a seamless integration. So we had a one, so it was, I, it was a real, it's not where you go to jump off to a third party website and then come back again. It was fully, fully integrated. But I'd been doing that for jessips.com yeah. the year before. So I'd already, I'd already walked that path. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because <laughs> I remember any time I tried to do any payment thing, it was just like, you've got to get a deal with Visa or something. <laughs> like, this is like never going to happen. <laughs> now, luckily, um, I was just, luckily one, of the, one of the good things about the MyProtein website initially, I'm not a designer, yeah. I'm a developer. So my sites were very functional, but they worked very well. They didn't break, they were quick. Yeah. They were very, very pragmatic and, and, and fluid. Um, so yeah, I think that was, a, you know, that was a key thing for converting people in those early days. Yeah. It worked. Okay, so in, in the early days, you've got your functional website, you're blending this whey protein that you've got from the cows directly. How, how did you get it off the farmers? Like, what, yeah. what, what was that process like? So I actually, so I actually, well, in the early days, it wasn't fully cow to customer. By the end, it was. Yeah. So we, we used, uh, I, I called maybe 20, 30, 40, maybe more dairies um, to buy the raw material from, but none of them would sell me. I only had a hundred pounds, 150 pounds to buy the raw material. So I only could buy, there's 20 kilos in a sack, it's three pounds a kilo, so it's 60 pounds a sack. Right. So I think I bought two sacks originally, which is 120 pounds approximately, plus delivery probably. There's no VAT back then, it's zero rated. There is now. <laughs> On a pallet comes 20 sacks. So it's like about 1800, quickly maths off my head, about 1800 for the, the, the pallet. And no one would break the pallet down mm. because they said it's just uh, become more of an admin issue because obviously they've got a part pallet. But then I did phone one guy called Andy and he, he, um, he, he believed in something in me. He says, I'm going to give you a go. And he says, but he had, in his later sense, and God bless his soul, he's died now, but, he's, um, but God bless his soul, he said afterwards that he knew I'd come back, he felt something there. And it was, it was buy two, then buy and sell, and buy four, and then buy sell four, and buy six. Yeah. It wasn't exactly those numbers, but, but the, um, so in terms of the actual dairy, we bought from a co-op. They were actually a cooperative for farmers. Okay. So all of the farmers pulled in their, their excess whey, whey produce, and then they, they sold it. They were a distributor from New Zealand, of all places. Okay, so you were getting sacks of like powder, and then... How do you go from that to a protein powder that tastes reasonably good? Like, how did you land on the formula? Like, how did that work? Yeah, uh, look, I'd love to be scientific in the answer, <laughs> but I'm an honest man. I like to be transparent. Uh, it was trial and error. Okay. It was trial and error. So I bought, so obviously got a raw material whey, which isn't a very bad tasting product. It's, it's similar to milk. I, put, I actually drink my whey protein raw these days without sweeteners and right. flavors. And then it was, I bought fla powdered flavoring, which was using ice cream. Okay. Um, so it was like a strawberry, or vanilla and chocolate, just kept it basic. And then I just put some in and tried it and then put some sweetener in. It was a, I think back then it was aspartame sweetener. Um, but we moved on to more of like a, a better quality stevia or sucralose later in the track, down the track. And then it was just trying error. I'm not going to lie. It was... Um, so you're just like putting powders into a blender and then trying it. And I saying, was just doing, this... yeah, just in, in my mum's kitchen, I was just, I was, I was making the products and I came up with a recipe which was perfect. Okay. However, on the first version of my protein, it was called my protein for a reason. It was called my protein because I wanted protein for you. Because if you buy a protein product off the shelf, it's it could be for a 16-year-old who's just joined the gym, yeah. who weighs eight stone, or it could be for an 18-stone seasoned bodybuilder. So my theory was back then to personalize it a bit more, 
That was one another USP. So it's not so it's obviously not just vertically integrated. It's actually choosing what you want. So when you went onto the product page, this is why the website has to be custom because it's definitely not something you could get off the peg. Then um, you could choose if you wanted it unflavored. If you wanted flavoring, you want light flavoring, medium flavoring, um, or heavy flavoring. And the same with sweetener. Some people like one sugar in the tea. Some like two. Some like zero. Yep. So so again, do you want no sweetener? Some sweetener or lots? And that was so everything was made to order. Okay. So you were getting orders in through the website and you'd put in, you'd be like, all right, this person wants two sweeteners and this flavoring. Exactly. Stick the powder in a blender, blend it together. Yeah. And then stick it in an envelope and send it to them. Like, yeah, <laughs> it was, it was as primitive. It wasn't even a blender. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was like, it was a 20 liter bucket. Do you know, when you go to Wix and you buy, yeah. buy paint, the Magnolia, <laughs> a big oh, yeah. white bucket. Yeah. A biggest bucket as you could get. It was one of those powders, everything in there. You weighed it in, of course, using the, the, the scales and then top on, shake it for, for 20 seconds vigorously. And there you go. It was a hand blend. Okay. And so <laughs> there's no machinery in this. <laughs> no machinery. So you were doing all this while working 10 hours a day as a full-time web developer. Yes. And then doing this in the evenings and on the weekends. The mornings. So I would wake up at four or five o'clock, yep. uh, print off all of the orders, which would create a works order. Uh, basically, it would it was affect. It wouldn't just say one protein, two scoops. It would actually do it in a work sort of. It categorize everything together. So all the, all the simple orders would be together. All the one kilo orders we could do them systematically. Then it would break down how many milligrams or how many grams of flavoring and whatnot into each one, depending on the volume. So I didn't have to get sit there with a calculator. Yeah, I got an algorithm to do all the back end, which would have been impossible to do otherwise. So I got put four or five. Went to my my uh, unit, which was the size of this room. Um, and did the orders, went to my job, did my full-time job, and then came back and then packaged them into boxes and put the parcel four stickers on. It was a long day. And then I went back to home and then I did the customer service, the, uh, the purchasing, the web development, the marketing, and everything else. <laughs> How did you um, kind of keep motivated to do all of this stuff? Uh, that's a good question. And honestly, sat here today, I have no idea how I did it. Mm. Honestly, I didn't. I think if I would have thought about it, I don't think I would have been able to do it. Yeah. I was just, I, looking back then, I was very much in the moment. I was just living in the moment. And obviously that is the only way to be successful. You hear anyone saying it today, mm. any sports stars, you just take game by game, set by set, yep. moment by moment. And I, and I did that. And I didn't do it through reading something in a book. I just... I just did it because that's, I had a really burning desire within, um, which was, I think was instilled from my childhood. And I really wanted to be, um, one of my goals when I was a chat was to be a businessman and I wanted to be a millionaire and yeah. I had all of these, you know, aspirational targets because I didn't have that when I was younger. So I think that became instilled within me. So once I found this idea and I realized it was working, I, w I didn't want to let myself down. If I didn't try my absolute hardest to, to, to achieve and I let myself down, I would have, that would be the that would be a very difficult conversation to have myself. Yeah. When 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 did you first realise that things like this idea was working? Oof. Well, from day one, we never got an, a day a day after the first day. We never had a day where we had less orders than the day, day prior. Oh. So we got orders on the first day, and then the day after we would have got more orders, and it was a completely it was a linear growth. I think there might be a couple of drops on, on a Friday, which typically in e-commerce is a less busy day than a Sunday or Monday, which are the busiest days for e-commerce typically. But it was certainly on a five-day rolling average, there was never a five-day before that was, was more oh, busy. Interesting. And yeah. probably the, 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 the absolute 
moment was when Danny, his name was, the, the parcel force driver. He used to come around, he used to do the last collection for me always because, because he knew I was working and I had to rush back to get there before the six o'clock before he went home. And the day when I packaged all the orders up, went down and he goes, Oliver, I can't fit all your boxes in. <laughs> Literally, he, he went back to drop all his, 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 his load from previous deliveries or collections. And then came back to my, my unit, filled it up and he couldn't get any more. And we had them in the front seat. We had them all in the back. He said, I'm going to have to phone someone else to come and get them. And then that, that was a bit of a, a euphoric moment. Interesting. So like one of the things... Um, I've done a lot of reading in, in, into the research around motivation. Um, and what the consensus seems to be is that you kind of start, like people think that you need motivation in order to, in order to do something. But what the research shows and what I guess all of our personal experience shows is that you actually start off by doing the thing. And as you start seeing small successes, that fuels the motivation to keep on doing the thing. Absolutely. And I guess as if the numbers are continuing to climb, it's the same with the YouTube channel, like you know, you refresh your app like eight times a day and you see, oh, I've got one more subscriber. Yes. And that fuels the desire to make the next video. And then it's two more and then it's four more. And then absolutely, I guess you start to adapt to the thing. And then now suddenly if you're getting 100,000 worth of orders in a day, it feels less good than it did on, it, on day it one. Do. And... Unfortunately, humans do seem to adapt to the background. And yeah. they are, we're, we are quite primitive creatures in that way or, or complex, whichever you want to look at. I guess um, the fulfillment side of it, is, is the same as what you just said. So, you know, getting more orders in, in a day was, was fulfilling me and giving me a drive to do more. We, 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 um, we, had, we created our own forum, which was, which was trailblazing back then. No one did a forum on their website. And, you know, that, building that community and hearing the feedback for the community was amazing. Reading the Trustpilot reviews and back in the early days, one of the first users of Trustpilot in, in, the, in, in the UK. Um, reading the reviews of positive reviews was great launching new products and seeing it sell because yeah. literally in the morning Ali I could come up with a product idea so for example I don't know like a random product idea just a blend of products like, like a bedtime formula so I wanted to create a blend of proteins which would, which would slowly digest through the night to stop the catabolic effects of lack of protein in your body so if you have whey protein you, it's, a lot, it's processed by the body more quickly than a than a casein, a milk-based protein, because it, it's a delayed, it's like a drip feed, if you like. So I, I, created, a, I created a blend of milk-based proteins. We put, a glute, we put a few amino acids in there, like glutamine, something to, which, was, which helps repair. A few other ingredients. Anyway, I came with that product idea in the morning. It was on a website by the afternoon. <laughs> right. It was that quick. Because we, we, we had the production in-house, we had the labeling house, we had everything, marketing in-house, copywriting house. Most of it was me in the early days. Yeah. But it was from idea, and no one could keep, it's impossible, literally impossible, and I don't use that word lightly, for any competitor to keep up with that. Who can launch, create the product in the morning and launch it in the afternoon? And if, to do that and then see it start selling in the evening and actually the money hit the account, yeah. it, was, it was a great feeling. I can imagine. That must feel, feel amazing. <laughs> how, so, so you said that from day one you, you, you had customers. Yes. How? How did you get customers from day one? Yeah, it was, <laughs> look, it was uh, the key driver. So Google AdWords was something I really championed in those early days. 2003-04, it was pretty, pretty new. Um, I think it launched in 2002, mm. around it, maybe earlier. But anyway, I was, but that was something I was super passionate about. And I, I managed the AdWords account. I built it from scratch. I managed it all the way to 2009 when I finally delegated it away. <laughs> and, you know, I was very proud of that because it was a £2.34 cost per acquisition all the way through. Which, and that's without, without brand in there. So take your brand out. So any of my protein searches were in there because we're getting a lot of repeat custom. 
Um, so the, we, the customers for day one was, was that. So we did some marketing on, um, on some other competitors. Um, which is obviously what you're allowed to do. And then, all, but the, the, I think the key driver was Muscle Talk, which was a forum for bodybuilders back then. Okay. I don't, I'm not sure it's still around anymore, but back, this is pre-social media. So this is before Facebook and all the rest of it, which has killed a lot of the, hmm. the V-Bulletin type forums. Yeah, the old school forum thing is just not a thing anymore. No. It's, it's kind of sad in a way, because those were great communities. I loved it. Yeah. yeah, that was, I learned a lot in those forums and on and, and IRC as well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, so there was a real strong community of bodybuilders called Muscle Talk. I think it had tens of thousands of members. I approached a guy called James, which is one of the co-founders of Huel, actually. Oh, really cool guy. <laughs> really cool guy. Anyway, so I approached him and I, I just said to him, can I create a sticky post? Basically a post at the top. Because in, in, in V-Bulls and functionality back then, you could create a stick. And no one was doing it then. So I just said, can you do that? I'll give you X. And it was a trivial amount of money. And I just said, new concept. Give some really great offer. I can't remember what it was now. Um, I think it was something for free or it was very cheap. And we were selling basically a kilo away for a third of the price of the competition. Mm. And it was better quality. We had the full um, certificate of analysis and whatnot. So yeah, that was it. I put the thing in there. Then the I put the post on there. And then the, the we got customers straight away. Because bodybuilders like to be new and do something new and try and get ahead of the curve. Mm. But once they're in and once they like the product, they're the best ambassadors out there. They, they're like cyclists in a way, which are a great community, community drive. If a cyclist gets a new product, yeah. I've seen this with Wiggle back in the early days, if they have a great product, they will champion it in, within their community mm. as like an advocate. Yeah. And that's what happened. Interesting. That's kind of like the modern day phenomenon of like uh, YouTubers, creators and stuff. Like if, if I discover a new app, then I will sing its praises from the rooftops. <laughs> and yeah. then like tons of people will be like, oh my God, I downloaded this app because of you and that. Yeah, it, it gives you a bit of kudos, doesn't it, as yeah. well? You know, and that's the feeling I think it does with someone who finds a new product in the bodybuilding world or, or any sort of area. It gives you a bit of kudos, gives you a bit of authority. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're leading the way on what's best to use. Sick. <laughs> so those early days, would you, in hindsight, were you having fun? Ah, oh, you know what? I... If, Fun's a subjective word, mm. isn't it? <laughs> I was, I was. Look, at, there was there was some dark, dark, dark days when I was growing my protein. It was. I'm not going to say it was all rosy. Mm. It was, I was. I probably had one of the best times of my life. Looking back at it, but was there some dark days there? Of course. I think business and life in general is peaks and troughs. Mm. You know, you've got to realise in those trophy days. That you know, it, it, the day will end not not too distant future, and you've got a new day the day after. Yeah. Um, so there was there was there was challenging days, but overall, looking back at it, sat here today itself, I would say it was definitely one of the best periods of my life. What were the dark days like? The dark days were as dark as they come. It was so certainly later on in the business when I had a you know a, a large business. Um, you know, we got to leading number one in Europe online. Mm. We were trading in six countries. We had hundreds of thousands of customers, you know, lots of staff. So when something went Pete Tong, when was something really wrong, then all of the pressure was on these two shoulders because yeah. I didn't. I was still 100% shareholder. I had didn't have anyone to lean on. Uh, we had no mentors, no chairman, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was a very, very lonely, very, very lonely space, and. Yeah, it tested my mental fortitude a lot. A lot. There's no pity party here. I, I went in for it. I knew the expectations. Yeah. Well, I didn't actually, but I, I do know them now, and I try and champion that now. The mental health of an entrepreneur yeah. is something that gets overlooked. And look, we, 
everyone thinks we're all strong and we're all okay and we're making money and all the rest of it. Not, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. But I think it is a is a lonely place, and there's nothing wrong with you know with that being the case. And you've just got to really roll with the punches in those situations. Interesting. Yeah, I was listening to your podcast um, where you were talking about hiring and the importance of building a senior management team. And I think around the 2008, 2009 mark Correct. was when you hired your, uh, brought people in to professionalize the business. Correct. Um, this is something that we're going through right now in our, in our business where like, you know, for the first two years, it was just me making YouTube videos. And then there were like two, three of us. Yeah. Um, Angus was one of them and Christian in Romania was, was another. And now we've got a team of 12 people. Oh, wow. And we're hiring another like eight or so. Um, and at this point, I think a problem that we're having is that we're all very like young and inexperienced and just sort of making stuff up as we go along. And a lot of people have said to me is that, okay, it sounds like you need to bring someone in to help professionalize this now that you're actually growing. And where I, I would recognize, and I know you talked about it in the book and the podcast, my weaknesses, I think, I think my, my personal strengths are in the idea and in the sort of talking to a camera and hopefully being engaging and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. But I really suck at, you know, holding people to account and operationalizing and processes and systems and HR and finance and all that other stuff associated with running a business. What was that like for you to kind of bring in a, a management team to help professionalize things? Yeah, look, it was, it was a challenge and it was a challenge. Um, so I think that the story, look, and it's, you've got some, you've got some uh, interesting times ahead, but very good times. It's going to be hard work, but there's, there's, it's certainly the right, absolutely the right course of action. So with, so in around 2008, as you correctly said, I, I started to have thoughts of maybe I should cash in a few of the chips, mm. should sell some of the business or bring in some partners who could help elevate the business in, in certain areas that I was looking for, um, like European expansion. So VCs or private equity that had that ability. Um, so, I had a I had a very candid conversation, just a just just a casual conversation with a local corporate finance house boutique, and they came in and said, "Look, you've got a phenomenal business. We're making a couple of million pounds a bit dar at the time, I think, and um, you know you, you, you're a brand. You're vertically integrated. It's in the high growth sector. The forecast for the next decade is to grow hugely, and it's surpassed that. Um, the the so I but they said there's one problem, Oliver, and it's a big problem." If you get run over by a proverbial bus, yep. <laughs> where does it go? Where does the business go? And it's obviously, you know, you're in a similar situation. Probably more so because you're in front of the camera. <laughs> but the, um, but it's a bit of a, another Eureka moment. I was like, okay, you're right, actually. And no one wants to buy a business when there's only one person as a sole break point. Mm. And also I, you know, I don't want to be doing everything forever. I need to delegate. They said to me, so we'll do that. However, you're not right to groom the business. That's the, the, the word in the, in the industry. So to groom a business is to professionalize it over a year, mm. bring in the senior management team, bring the processes and the procedures into to make sure it can run on its own. And they, they, they threw the old red rag out in front of the ball and they said, you're not the man for it. You can't do it. And I went... Okay, not to them, but they went away. And I went, okay, let's try that then. <laughs> yep. So I will give myself one year to professionalize business. And, uh, and that's what I did. So I, I went right down, down to my programming days. I wanted to systemize everything. So everything from printing an order 
to picking an order, to to, to every to every job within the company, we created a process book. Mm. So if I, it's basically a handbook of how to run the business. Yeah. Obviously not the creative side, but the functional and operational side, which is obviously the bit that you're yeah. weaker at. And then I then I looked at myself and I thought, what are the what are the, what are my strengths? And I'm similar to yourself as well. I'm more creative, entrepreneurial. Um, but I've, I've got a technical side as well. So I was, it's slightly unique in that side. However, I'm weak. I was weak in finance and I was probably weaker than I should have been in operations. However, I did do five warehouse moves and create a system. <laughs> yeah. but, I, but, I knew, um, but I knew where I was weaker at. So I got the finance director and operations director first. And then I brought in a, a marketing director. But he was... I, I was I was good at marketing, but he was he took it to another level. Mm. Um, so yeah, I just I think you've got to cover your weaknesses. I think that's the key key thing first as priority. Cover your weaknesses. How did you? And I'm I'm asking this purely selfishly. How do you go about hiring people like an operations director or a finance director? As, as in the the issue I'm having is that I don't know what good looks like mm. in that role because. I don't know anyone You'll who's know in marketing. You know when you meet group. them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'll know when you meet them. So, with in terms of in terms of, I, I have different levels of recruitment. It is actually in my book later on. Um, in terms of how I do the interview process, because for me the interview process is absolutely paramount. If you spend just you know just hire very slowly. If you rush hire, hiring and it's the wrong person, it's just so devastating, especially for a small business. For a large business, even still, it can be it can be toxic. So if you hire someone and wrong you've got someone's then got to train them mm. so that takes someone who's already working your business out of the game for x weeks then if they're wrong you're obviously paying this person uh, a salary to sit there they could be wrong and create a negative vibe in the the, the, the culture of the department could be toxic it can create all sorts of problems then you've got to go through the process of letting them go and if they've already left the job to come to you or it's, it's obviously has an impact on their life as well so i'm just very very can't stress enough, you've got to be really higher slowly. Take a little bit longer and it'll create so much beneficial. In terms of senior managers, directors, I used to use a three-step process. Initial one was more of a, how are you doing? Do, you know, does, the, does, the fit, does it feel right? Are we, you know, have we got the initial ticks and tick in the boxes? The second interview was more, um, was more in, uh, question-based around the role. And if I sensed what they were good at and what they weren't good at, I'd challenge them on, I'd ask all the awkward questions, and try and challenge them on, on, on that. Try and you know, see how they handle the pressure and whatnot. Then the final one for senior manager which was very important to me, which was very bespoke on what they were actually going to do. So for example, when I was employing my marketing director, I'd set them a marketing task. I'd create some of the bespoke, so I'd say, okay, I've created this, I'd, I'd give it to them and say, I've created this bedtime formula to use for an argument's sake. It's going to be called Bedtime Extreme or whatever the name mm. is. Oh, no, actually, I didn't even give them the name. It's, going to, it's a bedtime formula, project bedtime. It has these ingredients. It's targeting these people over to you, create a marketing campaign or name it. Then they, what they would do, I'd give them a week. They'd go away and they would do the work and then come in and ask them to present it to me. Yeah. And then I'd ask them to present it and then ask them to, to, to uh, and then I'd give them some more questions around it. Some people wouldn't want to do that. They wouldn't want to do a, because it is a reasonable amount of work. They're probably not right for this business then because we want people to really get stuck in. If they've not got a passion there, they're not right. And you will know, if you, if you sat down with someone and give them a, um, an absolute scope of work for being an operations director for your business, you'll know after they tell you, you you'll see if it's right for you. Mm, interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
I was I was listening to your on your podcast. You've got a three part series about hiring. Yes. Um, and in that, you say that <clears throat> I think I, th- I think one of the things that you said that even an extra like half a day spent like interviewing someone is absolutely going to pay dividends in the long run. Oh. And I was thinking in my mind that oh, you know, we've got these ten writers to you know to go through, and I you know let me try and go through their tasks as, as quickly as possible. And then I heard that, and I was like, holy! It's a false up. economy. Yeah, <laughs> it is a false economy. You yeah. know, just spend that time on it for you. You know, obviously your primary, but also for them because it's it's a big upheaval in their lives. You don't mm-hmm. waste anyone's time. But obviously, you know, think of business first. Just make sure it's right because it, it's unwinding employment is painful for no for everyone. It, there's no one, no no one's a winner. Yeah, no, naturally. Especially if you don't like confrontation. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely hate confrontation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Worst thing ever. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. But oh well, <laughs> there you go. So why did you decide you wanted to sell the business? How okay. did that come about? So that's, you know, that's a good question. And it's one that's been asked quite a few times. And sitting here, well, first of all, I'll, I'll roll back. So I, in 2008, I started to have those thoughts. Um, I didn't know what selling a business was really. I just knew I was sat on a valuable business, an asset. And all of, all of my value was in this business. I owned 100% of it. I didn't have any other assets whatsoever. Maybe a car or maybe a few quid in the bank from dividends. Oh, I did have a, actually, I did, I did write myself a check. But the absolute material part of my wealth was within that business. So the analogy that I use is if you're on a one-arm bandit machine, a fruit machine, mm. and you keep on spinning that wheel and you keep on seeing the jackpot go higher and higher and higher and higher, this is risk averse, I agree. At what point do you press cash out? Yep. Um, because look, you know, something dramatic, something really dramatic, even outside of my control could have happened. I know it's been fearful and with, with, with hindsight, I should probably not have thought this, but you could have lost it all. Because it's not, it's not, it's not um, sensible for any investor to have 100% of their eggs in one basket. Yep. You know, that's foolish. So I, my, my actual theory, my plan was to, to not sell the whole business. Mm-hmm. It was to sell a minority stake. Yep. So take some chips off the table, secure mine and my family's future forever, or for the, at least you know secure it for, for the long term, and um, and then get go with the private equity company and a second bite of the cherry and really drive the the European growth. That was the plan when I went into it. Okay. That's not what ended up happening. That's not what ended up happening. <laughs> I hear you got like 25 offers or some or 25 people yeah. wanting to bid on the business. Yeah. And then eventually the Hut Group made, yes. made an offer that you couldn't refuse. Yeah. Well, they were one of the well, 25. So there was about 25, maybe even more 30 plus offers. Yeah. Some of them, I, they, I worked with a corporate finance uh, broker, if you like, someone who, who managed that process. And they... You know, some of them didn't even make it off the table and straight in their bin. You know, they might have been low offers or dreamers or whatever it was. And then, then it boiled down to a 17 private equity. Okay. And it was like three or four big trade offers. The hook did come on later on, actually. So Pepsi were one, Nestle were another. I don't oh, know if I ever said this. I'm not sure I should. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure it's fine. Pepsi were Nestle were another. There was a couple of other big conglomerates in there as well. Um, they were trade buyers. They wanted to buy 100% of their business. The private equity wanted to do a minority stake, so they might have bought 30% of the business and I would have rolled the new equity into Newco and then yeah. grown it for three, four, five years and then get that second bite of the cherry. And that was the plan and that's what the management team were focused on as well and is what I was focused on. Okay. So there was what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so so we, we, we boiled it down, went through the process and then there was two um, private equity firms that I really liked 
I won't name the names um, because one, it's embarrassing for one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't know who they are. Uh, but I actually, um, what I wanted, I didn't want just dumb money. I wanted someone to come in. There's loads of money people want to throw cash at it. But I wanted, because it, it was probably one of the hottest businesses of the year in terms of that size. Mm. Um, so I wanted to, someone to come in and add value. Um, so the value that I wanted to add was something where... Um, where they had European knowledge because I was looking to roll into Europe. So, so you sign a deal for 30 days um, <laughs> where you basically say you're not going to speak to anyone else, i.e. The, the seller, and they're, they're just, no, it's me. I, I, they, they focus completely on my deal and I focus completely on them. So in that period of 30 days, it really goes into a deep due diligence. Yeah. So they really do start kicking a can around, they do financial due diligence, they really get in the numbers, they, they ask the interview the management team and really get into the thick of it. And I said to them, guys, this is fine. I appreciate you're not gonna be spending you know, tens of millions of pounds without getting, the, getting into the number of things. And, but however, this is going to take up serious amounts of management time and my time and things will probably plateau mm. because when we're not applying the, the the work, you know, things aren't going to grow as much. They won't go backwards. We've got repeat customers, 33% customers will repeat, but we are going to, we are going to soften off. So I don't want to sit here in one month from now, look at you and go, well, well, the numbers have dipped off this month. So we should reduce the price or something yeah. to that effect. So no, 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 don't be, we'll, we'll take that into the round. I went, perfect. No problem. Let's do it. So we went into the 30 days of deep due diligence and it was more work than I thought. Mm. It probably took up 90, 95% of your working day and for management as well. It was, it wasn't an enjoyable process at all, but we got out of the back of it. It was all rosy. Everything was positive and they were happy. Then he came to me and he looked me in the eye and he said to me, Oliver, it's flattened off the numbers. We're going to have to rework your multiple and, and basically chipping it. And I just went, let's just stop the meeting right now. If you're in sales mode and you're telling me this, then, uh, you know, I can't get into bedroom and work with you because there's no trust there. So we'll just call it off. And it was as simple as that. I just thought, that, let's just drop it. They were like, what? Hmm. And then he went away. And since then, he've actually told me we were the one that got away and we shouldn't have tried that little trick on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I've heard this happens a lot when you're in the process of selling in the due diligence. They're kind of figuring out ways to kind of chip away at the multiple and be like, oh, well, actually, that thing that you said it was worth 100K is actually worth 80K. Absolutely that do. That whole shebang. It's a bit... I think it's just the wrong way around. For me, you know, in that, pro obviously if there's something materially wrong, if you said the business is making a million pounds a year and it's really only making 700,000, and obviously that's gonna have a massive impact. But, you know, I think you gotta have some tolerance in there. And I think if you try to build a relationship which you need to have the founder on board, they need to be fired up and you need to feel, you know, trustworthy. You, I, think the, I think a lot of the PE houses go about it the wrong way. And this is where they need the more, less the corporate, more of the entrepreneurial side, yeah. isn't it? Because I guess if they're going to be a minority shareholder, right, then it's a, it's a relationship. It's not like they're acquiring all of the business and they're no. just... They yeah. need you. They yeah. need you on board. Obviously, that's one of the other things I didn't like, the provisions that private equity put in, even if they're a minority. So, you know, they can, they can swamp you. They've, there's bad lever arrangements. There's loads of different legal technicalities where they can they pull the rug from under your feet okay. like in, for example a bad lever arrangement which was a scary thing yeah well, what does if, that mean if you got caught um, drink driving if you did a criminal offence for one well that was one reason or if you if you do a gross misconduct or there was some lower thresholds if you did something along these lines you were classed as a bad lever and then if you're a bad lever that means all the records is taken away from you 
Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that is on an extreme situation, yeah. but that has happened. Okay. Look, you, you, obviously, you're not going to be drink driving or whatever, but you won't, why would you even put that in the, the risk factor? Or one day you might do something which conceived as gross risk conduct, yeah. but it actually isn't. Um, so so I, I was quite clear at the start, I didn't want any of those heavy provisions. Yeah. Obviously, if it's something like fraud or yeah. you get sent to prison for many years, then obviously fair enough. But you don't want the equity taken away from you. Mm. So you were went into this sales mode f- thinking you wanted a sort of minority private private equity acquisition. Correct. But then that's not what ended up happening. No. So we had that conversation with that yeah. private equity house that remained nameless. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they uh, and they're a famous one. And they then they went back to we we're back to square one. Okay. We we're back to square one. The other PE house wasn't right because there was a few things I wasn't fully comfortable with. I can't remember the details, but I wasn't comfortable. So we sort of went back to square one. And when this was like a year long 18 month long process we just come out the back of a heavy due diligence period we're all a bit tired yeah as well as everything else growing a business um so and then you know in the 11th hour the hook group came came into the into the equation uh they they made an, an attractive bid which was um attractive in the sense of the conditions there was no provisions there was um i could have i could have left the business the day after or could have stayed um and yeah there was there was no it was just very clean the deal was around about 34 million quid cash day one and then the rest of the value of the business which was about half of the value of the business was rolled into the hook group so i would then own i think it was around 14 percent one four of the hook group um the valuations how they worked out on that day and so I met with Matt, Matt Moulding, the the, uh, the CEO, founder of the Hut. We sat down. We got on. He was, you know, he was, uh, I believed in his passion. He had a good vision. He was a very personal person, and um, I believed in what they were doing. So I thought, you know, that this could work. Um, I sort of worked my rear end off. Well, I didn't sort of. I worked my rear end off for the last eight years. Yeah. This felt like a good way of taking cash off the table, which is. A, you know, ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> and then rolling it into something for it. The plan was it for its IPO one or two years later. But due to some, due to, um, due to issues of what they presented to me, the business, the, the whole group wasn't doing as well as, as, um, as they said in those days. I think they said they were making um, three or four million pounds profit, but it transpired they're making minus one. Oh, I would never okay. have done the deal if it was known. <laughs> yeah. So my protein was a bigger business. It was a more profitable business yeah. than the hook group then. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, they were selling CDs online. Yeah. We were, you know, that, that was a road to ruin, yeah. but we were, we were obviously in a really high growth <laughs> industry making five million EBITDA. Um, but anyways, at that point in time, that it was what I knew at the time was we were, I was acquiring a, a good stake in a, in a highly profitable business with a good vision. And obviously it's transpired since then, nine, 10 years later, it IPO'd for, yeah, you know, for a great number. 30 billion or something. Yeah, it's not quite <laughs> that much, it's about or, or, six and a half, six billion. Oh, was it? Okay. Okay. What's that like sitting at the table with someone who's just offered you 35 million quid? Yeah, it was, and it's a funny, it's funny this because actually someone else said to me when I got the check for the bigger check last year, but, and, and, and Matt actually said to me, Matt said to me, when we were doing the deal, signing lawyers, he says, What's it gonna, what was it like signing, you know, seeing 35 million quid or whatever it was landing in your bank account? And I went, it, it was no different. It, it made no difference to me in a way. 
Weirdly, I think because I, it, it wasn't something like I won the lottery. So one minute I didn't know it was coming, next minute I did. It, this has been building for many a year. I had this vision when I was eight. I had this vision for the last 10 years of becoming this position. So it just felt like part of the process. And that sounds quite strange, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't, I didn't go out and buy a new car. I didn't do anything extravagant. It was, I just, it was quite a, it was a surreal moment. Mm. Obviously I was happy inside. Yeah, but, but, yeah it wasn't a, uh, wow. <laughs> Interesting. So I've, um, I've, sp I've spoken to a few authors who've had their books hit like the New York Times bestseller list. Mm. Um, and one of them, you know, I asked, what was that feeling like when, when, you, when you got the call finding out you, you hit the bestseller list? He was like, to be honest, it didn't, it didn't really feel like anything. You know, I put in the work over such a long period of time. At that point, it was just a cool, went back to mowing my lawn. <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> the same. It's, yeah. it's, it's something that you've, you've obviously aimed at. And it's not, it's not new news, is it? It's something you've been working towards. Mm. But yeah, it was... I think there you go. I'll I'll agree with them, <laughs> and hopefully we can with this book we can get in the same place. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the subtitle of this book is how to turn five hundred pounds into three hundred and fifty million pounds. Yeah. So presumably the other three hundred and fifteen million was from the shares of the Hot Group. Yes, majority. Yeah. So um, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Look, well, it is a public number. I don't really like. Yeah. yeah. This was a very much a. The, the publishers wanted oh, those yeah. numbers. Oh, yeah, it's always a bit awkward when you're an author being like, yeah, oh, it's, yeah, it's a big, yeah. big clickbait here, the publisher's yeah, like, yeah, it wasn't, it's... it wasn't my idea. The name was, yeah. the, but the, the, the subtitle was, yeah. they, they pushed me towards that. No, they always do that. Like, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Authors always feel weird about that. Yeah. So look, it's, yeah. It, it is public knowledge. You know, in September last year, pretty much from year to the day, yeah. I sold a lot of my shares. I think it was for 289. Yeah. Um, um, in, 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 the, in the float of the hook group. I still own a good chunk of shares in there as well. Huh. But I sold 289 worth of shares in the hook group. It was a public record. So, so yeah, it's it already in the papers and it's, it's a, a float. What's the difference between having 35 million in the bank and having 350 million in the bank? <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, <laughs> it's just like more pure curiosity. Like, yeah. At uh, those levels of wealth, like what... I mean, I was looking at some prices of yachts and stuff, and they're in the tens of millions. So I guess no. that's one thing. But like, what, what, what's that experience like? I think it becomes pretty... I think if it was over a certain amount, it becomes to a point where it doesn't really make that much difference. Yeah. So I... Look, I'm in a very fortunate position, and I'm very, very grateful. I'll count my blessings every morning without fail of where but, I am yeah. healthy. I've you know, I've got beautiful people around me, and I've got a lot of money in the bank. And you know, I'm very grateful for that. Um, I think that's first and foremost. I think having over a certain amount gives you the key thing. It gives you is freedom and choice of options. Um, you know, like now, I could literally decide to go and jump on a plane and go to. Barcelona for the weekend or whatever, you know, that, and if you're working in it with, for someone or you've not got expendable cash, you know, that might be a bit of a consideration, but now I can do it. Um, so that's the first thing. It, it gives you the choice to being able to help people, which mm. is important to me around me. It goes to help people you don't know as well and help people who are less fortunate. So all of these things are great. Um, but one thing it doesn't do is give you happiness. I know it's, it, you know, wealth and there's definitely no pity party here. Yeah, of but wealth brings a whole raft of its own problems. Um, what kind of problems? Oh, God. Jealousy. Okay. Um, uh, you, you obviously acquire more, you know, more things which need more management. Uh, people ex expectations are raised to a whole new level of, from people from yourself. Your own expectations are raised. You know, you've got this wealth. You, sh you, know, you want to be helping people, helping yourself 
grow the monies more. You don't rest on your laurels. Hmm. It, it, it creates a lot of its own dynamics. Um, and again, no pity party. I wouldn't but, want to change yeah. anything, but it's, it's not all right. You've got all this money. Life's really happy. It's really easy. It creates a lot of its own stresses and strains. There's a, there's a famous um, study they did about, um, I think it was pe people who won Wimbledon and also people who won gold medals at the Olympics. And in the aftermath of that, they had an increased uh, likelihood for like mental health problems and stuff. And the theory was that like once you've hit the pinnacle, then you sometimes can feel this sense of, oh crap, what, what do I do now? Absolutely. Did you have that at yes. all? Yes, yeah, okay. I did. What, what Look, I like? had yeah. that in 2011 when I saw my protein. Yeah. You could see how much work and uh, effort to put into my protein, literally blood, sweat and tears. And I'm not just coining a cliche for a reason. It was everything, it was my life. It was yeah. the first thing I thought about, it was the last thing I thought about. Uh, it wasn't what I dreamt about most nights. Um, so, you know, these, um, going from that to having not the business from literally one day to the next, you know, in literally a split second yeah. was a huge void that I, I struggled to fill. It was, it was hard. And even now today, it's, it's hard to fill. I, I, I was, I loved being at the coal face and working, but I've, over obviously the last decade or so, I've got more things to do now running various investments and, um, I'm working on a lot of Charles Wolf's things mm -hmm. and my book, podcast, um, spending more time with friends and family. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah like in, in, in the four hour work week as well, he talks about how once you've gotten to this point where you've, you've automated your business, you've got all the passive income and you are theoretically only working for four hours a week, you have this void, <laughs> which you're like, you, you have to fill up with something. Um, and how it's in, in a way, a cautionary tale about how a lot of people, sort of are aiming at that point thinking that it's going to bring them happiness of like oh once i exit my company once i quit my job and i have my business and then i'll be then i'll be happy but i guess what you're saying is that it, no that's it's not it doesn't it, that's yeah. the, look it is it, and it's and it's actually a dream and an aspiration for everyone and it was for me and you know i i managed to achieve that dream and that aspiration but certainly it's not the it's not the end mm. you know it is and it's not the right everything's okay now you need to plan for after after that i think footballers is another perfect example yeah. when how do they do it? <laughs> footballers yeah. have the career and then when they finish the career they're like what do we do now yeah and i think that needs to and there should be more help and more and this is one of the things i'm going to do in my next season of the podcast actually is i'm going to try and people who are fortunate enough to exit a business mm. to try and help them start planning for that change in their lives. It's something I didn't do and I would have done it with hindsight because um, it is a huge change. I moved to Monaco as well. That was another reason, one of the times to change. I wanted to change the scenery, try and fill in the gaps. You said one of the problems with having lots of cash in the bank is jealousy. Yeah. Like how did you notice that kind of friends and family were treating you different, that kind of thing? Uh, look, I have, I have, I have my, most my best friends I've known for 25, 30 years. They're still my friends today. The ones I had from primary school, secondary mm. school, before I had any money. And to, to them, I'm just Ollie. Oh, I'm nice. just the same guy that I walk into the pub and they'll offer me to buy me a pint. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, they're my, my close true friends. So they, it's not changed. There's no, I've never seen an ounce of jealousy within them. Yeah. Um, but then I guess you have different levels of friends. So maybe some of the friends who are more just mates, acquaintances, mm. you, you do notice it. You do notice it. Nothing, nothing specific. It's just, and it's, I think it's quite a natural sort of emotion mm. for some people. And then you do get some, you obviously get other people you don't even know who become jealous and say some catty remarks like, 
oh, you should be helping everyone uh, else, or you should not have this much money. I don't know. Just, 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 yeah. just, you know, just typical. Yeah, because you've had quite a lot of media attention. You know, uh, rated number one entrepreneur. Or, uh, there was that list of um, self-made millionaires under forty, which you weren't kind of top of the list of. Yeah. Uh, did you get like haters and stuff on the internet through that? Yeah, I do. I, like, I, not, not as many as uh, look. You'll always get haters in life. I'm sure I've got yeah. quite a lot out there, and that's you know that's their progressive. I, it doesn't it doesn't affect me either way. That's you know everyone's got to have their own views and beliefs. So I'm not going to challenge them in any way, shape, or form. It makes no difference to me. However, the I think people need to realize. I don't know. Well, they don't need to realize, but I think it's. I don't know if I was. If I was in, if I didn't have the success I did, if I, I would view someone who started a business with nothing, yeah. come from a working class inner city family, single parent family from Manchester, and, and grafted to get to where I did, and I'd yeah. have admiration for them. I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not giving myself kudos here. Well, in fact, I am a little bit, <laughs> but I'd have admiration for that. It's not as if they just found money on the beach or something or or yeah. um or maybe some people would have more jealousy with someone who inherited it and they have to work for it which is very a very important thing for me and my children you know i don't want them to become silver silver spoon but yeah for someone who's actually built it built, created wealth and jobs from nothing mm. then 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 i think it's, it's harder to hate but yeah. i'm surprised <laughs> yeah and that was one of your dreams when you were eight isn't it like to to be able to create jobs for people uh, what was the what, what was the line that you wrote in your in your journal Okay, so quite a while ago, so I forgot. <laughs> no, I mean, no, got- no, no, it was, uh, it was, it was something along the lines. And there's, there's a beautiful story in here, Ali. Ali. There was, um, so when I was eight, I apparently wrote this. I can't remember writing it, but it says when I, um, it was, the question was something along the lines of from the the teacher, what do you want to do when you're older? And typically, when you ask an eight year old, it would be a football Bubble player, fireman, <laughs> yeah. astronaut, exactly. So. I actually said I wanted to be a businessman. I wanted to um, I wanted to uh, create jobs for others and help other people, or something along, along those lines. And I didn't know about this, but my, I think a few years ago, my mum brought me on my birthday, brought me in a frame, obviously wrapped a frame, ripped it off, and I was like, "Wow!" And it was actually um, it was actually the letter that I wrote when I was eight. Um, and it was you know, framed and it, it blew my mind because I then started to thought I'm, I'm massive on self-reflection mm. I'm massive on self-reflection nowadays and I was like trying to understand what was what was the reasons I wrote that because obviously I can't remember I can't remember why I did it you know it was 35 years ago whatever it was so um, but then I was trying to I, I sort of figured out I understand why I would have wrote the businessman and because I would have figured out that's a way of making money and that was a very clear goal of mine. But I don't know the jobs bit and I don't think that was something that, I don't think that's something you're born with, which I say in my book. I think it's something that's come from something in life, a pattern or or something. Mm. I don't know. And I don't understand the psychology behind that, but I want that's something I'm going to reflect deeper into and trying to understand because I find that fascinating. Interesting. Yeah, so you talk a lot, a lot about self-reflection these days. What does what, what does that mean, and like what does that look like practically for you? So I think naturally I've always been self-critical. Okay. Um, I naturally always reflected on things and always looked at how I could do them better. And this wasn't from reading a book, and this is before I knew the word self-reflection. This was just something I did naturally. Um, I don't know. I think it's just the way I just the way I'm, I'm, I'm wired. Everyone's good at certain things, and so I I self reflected organically, if I can say that, yeah. um, 
all the way through my protein. I always looked at what I could do and I always want to continually improve. So what's key with me and a real key analogy is, um, some people come to me, a slight tangent, but some people come to me and say, oh, well, I've been trying this business for a couple of weeks and it's not working and I'm gonna give up. And then the best analogy that I can give is, if you get a bucket of water and throw it on some rocks, and throw on rocks maybe a hundred times, nothing's gonna change, nothing. However, if you get that bucket and throw it on the rocks, every two seconds for centuries or millions of years, yeah. it'll erode the rocks. And you know that's that, that with patience, water can erode rocks. With patience and pers- perseverance, you can do anything. So keep doing what you're doing, do it systematically, do it absolutely with um, consistency, and you'll achieve your goals for sure. That is absolutely paramount to, to being successful. It's cornerstone. So slight tangent there, just went off on with the, but in terms of self-reflection, that's what I saw. I saw when, when I continually did something time and time again, even if you can't see it, then you will start to chip away at the rocks, chip away at your goals, chip away at your, your, your aspirations. So the, the, um, so I actually really look, so I did that all the way through my protein. That was one of the things I saw. How could I do that better? Always ask yourself the awkward questions. Um, so you be, be, self, be self-critical. So if I say, why didn't I do that? Okay, I can do it the best of this and that time. And be reasonably unreasonable with yourself. Okay. Be reasonably what, what unreasonable. So don't be not fair with yourself or don't be nice with yourself. Be a little bit unreasonable be reasonably unreasonable okay yeah so just beat yourself up a little bit not too much and just so okay i did this i could do better next time make yourself feel do better challenge yourself then then in, in you know if you can't if you can't challenge yourself and make yourself proud of what you're trying to strive for who can you do it for you know I think it's got to start from within. So in terms of the self-reflection, so that's one side, the self-critical side. Yep. Then on the flip, give yourself a pat on the back. If you've done something, you've done something well, sit down and give yourself a pat on the back. And that's not, it's a balance between being overly confident and overly critical, yep. but get that balance right. And that's self-reflection in a nutshell. So I actually reflected, I think I really realized I was reflecting and I went deeper into the self-reflection process when I thought of the book. So when I started to think around the book and then started to think of different stories within the book and the different limbs to the book and how that could look the book, then I really started to go, oh, wow, okay. This is, and there's loads of reasons why I did the book, but that was when I put pen to paper, metaphorically speaking, (laughs) (laughs) then I actually went just a whole new level of deepness within myself and within the self-reflection process. And it made me a lot better in terms of how I can improve myself. Look, I'm far from the finished article, but it really did help. And I would absolutely recommend for anyone, even if they don't have a, what's perceived as a, a, you know, a, a, a story like this, even if they just lived a normal life, inverted commas, yeah. Do a, write a memoir. Maybe you don't need to get it published, but write a memoir. Reflect on your period of your life or the, over the period of time. You will, you absolutely guarantee you will find things which will make the next period of your life better. Do you have any, any, any examples of sort of what did you realize about yourself through the self-reflective process that came about through writing the book? So, I, good question. Um, I think there was, there was pluses and minuses. Um, mm. So uh, if you want specific examples, I think I did understand that I was starting on a plus. I did understand that I did do well. 
Um, I did really, really, on, on some of the things, I can't remember ex exact examples, maybe on some management leadership sides of things, maybe on product development, on the website development, maybe mm. I did really excel within my own capabilities there and I should pat myself on the back and maybe try and improve myself in terms of even go even better on certain areas. Okay. So like project now, I'm starting to do a bit of coding again. <laughs> not not for any, not for a commercial project, but just for my own, I'm doing a few things which are just like off, off the, uh, um, yeah, in private, guess, I guess. And then negatively, what did I learn? I learned that I could um, be quite, I'm, I am naturally shy. I'm naturally an introvert. People don't see that. Um, a lot of the time, maybe you do. Um, the So that was something I felt like I could really try and break out of that shell, break out of my shell more. Um, maybe I could be more compassionate. Okay. Um, there's certain areas where I really did, you know, I was, I was very a detached emotion and I believe I could have been more compassionate in certain situations. I won't give examples on that point. But these, so I think there, there I think there's a few examples. What was the process of writing the book? Uh, so the process of writing the book. So the, first of all, I wanted to, I think, I think the initial process was coming up with the reasons why I wanted to write the book. Yeah. If, if the reasons weren't profound enough for me to do it, I know I wouldn't complete it. Yeah. And then once I've started on that journey of doing it, I don't want to stop. So I think the, the, the reasons that I wrote it, one were, um, and it was a multitude of reasons. One was to, I've got a process, and in no particular role, one yeah. was to try and give back. Okay. I believe it's a, an inspiring story and hopefully it's a helpful story to, to budding entrepreneurs or, or whatever. So I wanted to give back as part of the podcast, as part of some of the other initiatives that I'm doing in the background, I wanted to give back to the next gen of entrepreneurs and hopefully if it can inspire one person amazing um it has already inspired numbers of people um from emails i've had and whatnot so yeah. so that that was first thing secondly i'm um part of my deep thinking self-reflection process yeah. i want to I, I sort of thought about my my the people who stood behind us so you know we're all here today drinking this beautiful water and from a tap and from we're drinking we're eating fruits for our breakfast which have come from far-flung lands you know and that's all we've had the internet we have all of this infrastructure in place and it's from all the people who stood behind us you know so we should be super grateful for all of our ancestors yeah. who've who've laid the tracks for where we are today so i think we have to all be grateful for that and be you know be reflective on that but then it then it's spun on to be the future so the people who stand in front of us we should try and leave our legacy, our personal legacy, or the world in a better way than where we are today. So I wanted to, by, by writing this book, I hopefully can in, then inspire some of my ancestors in 100, 200 years maybe, yep. of where, where, this, where this happened, you know, what, what, what happened in that family tree. I'd love to read about my ancestors. Um, so that was, that's, I think that was a, an important point. And then it was also, finally, it was a bit of a memoir for me personally, because my mum actually said to me, told me about a story in the, in the days of building my prototype, which is many. And I forgot, I literally couldn't remember it. I could not remember it. And I was like, wow, that's, that's concerning. I'm not getting any younger. My memory's gonna start going only one way. I need to write this down for my own personal memoir. Um, and also for my children, my children's children. You know, I put a lot of hours in and maybe not been as, as, as done as many hours with the children as mm. I would have done if I didn't have a business. So 
I want to, you know, I want them to I want them to read it when they're older and yeah. understand Daddy was doing something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those were your reasons for writing the book. Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah. And then what what comes next? So like, I'm I'm writing a book at the moment, oh, but it's it's like a it's it's not a memoir. It's like a guide on productivity and right. stuff. So the process is, I guess, quite different to writing a memoir. So I'm curious about what yeah. the process for that so is. So I, I then, so I had, a, I had some solid reasons to do it. Yeah. Um, and then I just sort of started fleshing out what it would be about. Is it going to be a, a helpful book? Is it mm. going to be like a biography, autobiography, a memoir? I thought, look, realistically, from when I was born to when I saw my proteins, an interesting bit of my life. Mm. There's stuff that's happened since then, maybe a sequel if it ever sells enough, um, if it have the time as well. Um, so then I just started to flesh out a bit of a timeline. So I started yeah. with a timeline. So I started 1979 to 2011. I started putting in points of what happened in these years. I started to get a structure together and then uh, fleshed out a bit of, bit of a, like a synopsis per chapter sort of thing. And then... Then I sort of just bounced the idea around and I felt like it had legs. Um, then I actually met up with a, an editor, someone who's worked with books before and I give the, him the idea. And he, I worked closely with him. Um, so I, I created I created scribbles and then he turned it into copy. Yeah. Um, I wrote some things, he rewrote it, he advised. So we worked together really in, in a way. Most of the copy has been, I'm not going to, try and take any credit most of the copy had been rewrote by him to be more grammar i'm not i'm not i don't i'm not an a star in english lit but um but all of the key parts uh, are the structure was mine and then at what point did you get the publishing deal like how did how did that process work so i wrote the manuscript first oh okay and then um so we wrote wrote the book it was pretty much print ready because he's he's actually wrote a few books himself And I was happy with the manuscripts. It was a very collaborative process, the end bit. Yeah. Uh, bounced it backwards and forwards. We spent many an hour and he was, he was great, Martin. How does it feel having published a book? <laughs> I'm proud. Yeah. I'm proud. Uh, it feels like a, another tick in the box. It's always been a lifelong ambition, if you like, to yeah. have a book. Um, and yeah, I, it's, it's good. It's, it's good. It, there's a lot of work there. Yeah. There's a, it's, a, it's a huge time drainage, as you're probably finding out. Mm. Um, so, but it feels like an accomplishment. It feels like an accomplishment. It feels like I've, I've done, I did the work and now I've sort of wrote about it. I've sort of signed off now. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You can, you know, I can get run over by the proverbial bus now. I'm not touching face. <laughs> yeah, you're you're and good. Then, yeah, it's all there. So there's quite a lot of lessons in the book from kind of very early days, but you also talk a bit about like scaling the business and going for the sale. Um, how do you think about like, or rather who, who, who's the book aimed at? Like who, who would benefit from, from reading it? That's, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say, I think it's a multitude of demographics. Mm. So I think it's uh, primary. No, I think there's a range. I think it's anyone, I won't like to put an age bracket on it, but I think it's anyone who's starting a business, first and foremost. I think it could be really powerful for them. I also believe anyone who just wants a little bit of inspiration in life um, from, and it could be in a career. It might not be one to start a business. Maybe they just enjoy reading about an inspiring story. Yeah. Um, I'd like to say some business owners as well. Maybe maybe there's some information in there, not just as a startup, but maybe as a, a another business. So I think it's a, a reasonably wide net on that. Yeah, yeah. I think like whatever, uh, whatever whatever stage of the journey people are at, like chances are they're not <laughs> at the point where they've sold for something for thirty five million. And so like 
I, I, I benefited a lot from the stuff around hiring and leadership and all, all that sort of stuff. Whereas people earlier on in the, in the journey would really benefit from the stuff around mindset and keeping going and finding your USP and all, all, all that kind of yes. stuff. Yes. Um, I think mindset is something that I, I believe I've got quite a, a look, I'm not, I certainly don't profess to be an expert and write a book on it, but I certainly can write a few chapters on mindset. It's something that I think is so important with, with life but also bootstrapping essentially, but for certainly in, in business as well. Um, so yeah, I think mindset is so key. Well, there's, there's tons of good books out there. Yeah. What are the what are the mistakes that you see other entrepreneurs make around the mindset thing or traps that people can fall into quite easily? Yeah, just mindsets. I'd say, oh, I think people like to overthink and it's not, look, it's an easy thing to do. Procrastination is is something that most people do. But I just think you need to recognize when you need to just stop and just close that thought off and move on to the next one. Because, you know, your brain is, is like, you know, another analogy is like, uh, like your broadband. It's only got so much bandwidth. Yep. You know, if you, if you keep on thinking about all this stuff here, you know, you, you're sort of reducing your, your bandwidth by half or whatever it may be. So, you know, free that bit up and then you've got full bandwidth to, to attack the next problem. The, the, the other thing is, which is on the same sort of premise, is, is fear. Fear is a liar. I've coined that one a few yeah, times. Yeah, right? you mentioned that a few times <laughs> in the book. What, do, but, what does that mean? So fear is a liar. Look, it, if you've got a fearful thought, thought then it is lying. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Mm. So basically don't believe what fear Never believe a fearful thought, don't believe in fear. So easier said than done, but if you, for example, think, okay, just as a round example, I'm going to start a business, but what if this happens? Yep. Maybe this will happen. Can I do that? Am I capable of doing this? What does that person think? What happens if I fail? All of those are fearful points. They're all come from fear. Yeah. And it's never, I, I've never known anything in life which is outside of fortune where fear is the right instigator of a decision. No fearful thought is the right decision. Interesting. So the whole point is, you know, you don't, you've got to ignore those fearful thoughts. And that doesn't mean go and jump off that balcony and you're going to fly because I'm not fearful of it. You've got to have some rationale there. There's got to be some constraints of, you know, being sensible. But the in terms of um, in terms of why, how that can in terms of how that can improve mindset. So if you're thinking something, oh, can I do this? Or what happens if I fail? All of these fearful things. Recognize it like a cloud in the sky, and let it pass. Acknowledge it, recognize it, let it go. It's gone. Then then you're free, and then you're then you're then you're then you're bandwidth for free. Free. It's easier said than done. I completely respect that. It takes a lot of training. It took so it took a lot of time for me to learn to be able to do that. And sometimes I can't. Believe me, there's many a night I lie in bed and I can't switch off from things. I'm really trying to meditate. I'm really trying to go within, but it doesn't. It's not. It, Look, I'm not a Buddhist monk by any stretch of imagination, but I can do it a lot of the time. I can do it for 80%. And if people could start just recognizing their fearful thoughts, acknowledging them, and then letting them go, they can give themselves more time to focus on the positive things. Positive habits equal positive results. The end. Yeah, I think the fear thing is really interesting. Like, I, I find that a lot, of, a lot of the things that hold us back, we call things like imposter syndrome and perfectionism and stuff 
but really it's just fear. Yeah. And I've been realizing this over the last like year or so that when I feel like, oh, I'm too much of a perfectionist, therefore I'm not doing this. It's like, no, no, you know, let's call a spade a spade. I'm scared. <laughs> I yeah. have fear. And then like once I've labeled it, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm scared about what people will think of me. I'm scared that there's a small minority of people on the internet who will not like the fact that I talk about money on, on the podcast. Okay, great. I've now labeled that. And now I can be like, okay, that's, it's a bit dumb to be scared of that. Let's just, Absolutely. I'm not going to let that dictate my life choices. So screw that. That's it. <laughs> you, you, that, that is a, exactly the same process that I... And again, this wasn't something I read about in a book. I'm, I've become more spiritual. In, mm. But I was naturally more like that anyway when I was younger. I'm more stoic. I'm stoic. For, I'm naturally stoic. Very stoic. But I think the spiritual side... Look, and again, I'm, I don't profess to be a spiritual teacher of any shape or form. But a lot of the things I did were more spiritual. And some things I need to do a lot more spiritually. But a lot of the concepts really resonate with me. But if you, if you label something as... Yeah, you can call it all the different names under the sun. If it's fear-induced then label it, acknowledge it, and then let it go. Yeah. And just do what's right for you, I guess. You know, you're never going to please everyone, are you? <laughs> what do your goals look like these days? Like, what's the example? Yeah, there's, the goals are the game more and more um, empathetic, empathetic, more and more personal, more, more feelings-based. So I want to, you know, I've achieved a lot in business. Do I want to be a billionaire or... Do I want to have hundred homes around hundred homes around the world? I'm not sure to be honest. I'm, I feel like I've really, I've, I've really achieved. Right now, I'm just trying to get everything in order so it's structured, so it's professionalised. Again, if I get everyone over by the proverbial boss, everything's going to work and run. I'm going to be able to continue my giving journey. Yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going to be able to help people who I want to help and the succession planning behind me, in front of me. Um, so, so that's a lot of my bit. My time now is focused on structuring and creating the right structures and processes of, of how to run because effectively where my my um my life now is like a is like a business you know with this with that level of wealth um whatever the number is then it's you know it's as big as a medium or even larger yeah, business have like a is it like family offices and that kind of thing yeah that, uh, all that sort of stuff yeah. so you know creating all um, all that structure in place yeah um, is, 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 is where I'm however a, a massive part of this now is my next part of my life is giving yeah. I want to I want to give and, and, but I want, I'm not going to just go right here's a load of money here's to everyone I certainly you know I don't respond to people who just email me out of the blue because that's I give to certain charities I'm a, I'm a patron of Make-A-Wish um, I, give, I give money to them I do various things with them an amazing charity anyone can help you know if any, if you can help a child with who's got a serious or a terminal condition mm. make their dreams come true you know what if you can't if that doesn't give you joy within yeah. what's going to give you joy in yeah. life i mean it's an amazing feeling and you know i've helped hundreds of children and plan to help hundreds more um you know do their wish in fact last year i it was i think i helped all the children who had an outstanding wish in greater manchester i did all everyone in one obviously i'd be like to help more and that will happen over time so that's one is the caldwell children who'd like to mention who are um john caldwell's a friend of mine he helps uh, children with, with with various disabilities so that's another charity and i've got various other ones as well but what i want to really do ali next year and i've already got the the the, the idea in play is I want to I created a legacy in charity uh, legacy in business in my protein. My protein will be here in hundreds of years. It should be if it continues as it is. And I want to create a charitable legacy. Okay. So I don't want to just create another uh, another fund or another trust which is 
um, which is then just giving my money away. I want to create something with the money that I've got, actually create more money mm. and continually give. When I'm dead, when you know I'm talking like 100 years, I want something to be, to be there and to be evolving and to be a tangible thing and actually help it forever. I've got an idea. So it's an entrepreneurial, charitable idea. Okay. Um, which is going to be self, fully self-funded by myself. It's going to benefit a lot of people of, um, in the disadvantaged communities in, um, in the UK, predominantly. Well, no, it's going to be solely the UK. Predominantly, they're going to focus in Manchester and then pilot it and then roll it out. Um, so yeah, that's, that's going to take up a lot of my time. One thing that you said, I think, in, to, to, towards, towards the end of the book, you said that um, had you not sold my protein, you would be a billionaire right now. Correct. Um, I have heard of a lot of people who are like, like you know, multi multi hundred millionaires who then aspire, you know, to join the three comma club and nah, become billionaire, you know, all that, all that, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> do you see in yourself a drive to make even more money? Slash, do you know people have friends who are ridiculously rich and want to become even more ridiculous? Is is, is that like a thing? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think you can get a bit. You, you, your goals, if they're consistently just to be the richest man around, you're never going to achieve them, yeah. realistically. There's only one person who can do that in the world. That's, 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 and the chances of that are, you know, next to zero. Um, so, you know, from where I am today to, to get to that position, it's never going to happen. Mm. And why would I anyway, it's, you know, after, how, after certain amounts of wealth, where does it become a bit of a, an ego thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you look, it's all very well being proud and having goals and achieving goals. But I think there's got to be a balance between, between that and the ego. So I, um, look, do, you know, do I believe I could turn this into a bigger number? Whether it's three commas or not, of course I can. I'm 42. Mm. You know, I've got another, at least 30 years, 30, 40 years plus of, I've got at least another 34 years of business if I want it to be. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, there's no doubt I can get into that three comma club. However, I want to, it sort of offsets the giving side because I want to also help people. Yep. So, you know, you can't do everything. So I'm going I'm to try and balance it out. I'm going to try and create more wealth to help more people and to, you know, to, 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 uh, to keep me busy as well. I'm good at it. So why not? What does a standard day in your life look like these days? Every day is different. Okay. Every day is different. If I'm completely honest with you, I want to come up with a more routine day. Mm. Um, because I think routine is one of those things that people hate to be in, yeah, you know, the rat race in London or the rat race in Manchester or wherever it may be, you know, everyone when everyone's in that, you get up at seven, get on a get on a train at eight, do your job, come back. When you're in that routine, everyone hates it. But when you're out of routine and you don't have a routine, everyone hates that too. Yeah, <laughs> could be some kind of balance <laughs> yeah. there, right? Yeah. So that's so I'm, I've sort of got a loose routine. So I wake up. I've never been an early waker, by the way, early riser. You know, I've never, even when I was building my protein and doing these hourly days, I, right at the start I was because I was doing two jobs. But once I lost my main job, I was always, I always woke up at eight, nine o'clock, you know, earliest. And now, now I'll probably wake up at a similar sort of time. I'm not super early waker. I wake up, I read, I read the news, I read, um, I try and read something of value. Mm. Before they do anything, I realize how grateful I am to be where I am and, and do this um, sort of ritual, if you like. I use the gym, I do emails, and then I have various functions or work or social activities. So it's pretty loose. One thing I do want to do and one thing I need to do and one thing, one of my goals at the moment is to 
create a more rigid uh, routine for detoxing digitally. Oh, okay. I need to figure out a routine for my phone mm. because right now I have it's too int- it's too intrusive. I'm finally getting WhatsApp and I'm replying to it, and it's I'm getting I have RSI as it is from the years as um, really hammering a keyboard. The but um, but now it's starting to come back again because I'm using WhatsApp too much. So I think I'm going to I need to find a way of I need to, I'm going to Google it and research it and find because obviously this is a well-trodden path of actually just sort of disconnecting a little bit from the digital side yeah. for periods of the day and having focus hours. Okay. So yeah, I believe that would help me because it's it, yeah it creates lots of negative emotions when you get stressed on your phone. <laughs> yeah, no, naturally. I just wanted to end by so we've we've got these ten like rapid fire questions that we ask oh, every wow. guest at the end. Um, the, the the questions are quick, but the answers don't have to be quick. So it's, okay. it's just a, in, a, in a random order. Okay. Um, so I'm sat down. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Um, so number one is, what advice would you give to your young, younger self? Ooh, that is a punchy question and one that I would know. Look, and it is absolutely what I said before about the, the patience and, and consistency. Yeah. Be consistent, be patient, and believe in yourself. Nice. Um, who is your favorite musical artist or band? Wow, there's so many. Look, I'm 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 quite peculiar when it comes to music. I only listen to electronic music, so it could be ambient music, it could be techno. I like everything. I like electronic. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm an electronics technical geek, really. Nice. So, what is your favourite band or music? I guess it's a, an artist. Oh, there's there's, there's too many. Um, uh, you, 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 no one would have probably heard them because they're quite. A bit, bit niche, yeah. yeah. A bit niche. <laughs> What's a good gateway drug that, that you know we can listen to? Like, I don't know. L- a good gateway, yeah. good gateway music. It depends on the mood. Like I say, I listen to melodic house or listen. Look, Jose Padilla, who died earlier this year for Cafe Del Mar, okay. is something I listen to when I'm working, when I'm relaxing. You can't beat that vibe, that Cafe Del Mar ambient music, down tempo. Cool. Um, Something like, uh, it's going to be very obvious, but like as a gateway, like a Solomon or a Black Coffee for a more energetic more new age house and then that'll be enough to keep people going (laughs) (laughs) um who has had the biggest influence in your career myself Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you're your own trauma um what's one tip for someone looking for success one tip one tip and look and this is i've made this a cliche now but it is important it is important and no thing is in the way of saying it. Well, no, there isn't. Fear is a liar. And it is, it's something I've been coining, but it's so important. The sooner you realize that these fearful thoughts are going to bring absolutely no positive impact to you, they're not going to serve you yeah. at all, the more you can focus on the good stuff. Love it. Um, what did the first and last hour of your day look like? Ooh, the completely different to the first hour when I was building a business. So my first hour is, abs- I'm not a morning person at all. In fact, it's a, I dislike mornings compared to the evenings. Um, but the first hour is just really a lazy, lazy hour. I'm lazy. And I, love to, I love training in the gym, but I'm useless in the gym. Um, so so that's the first hour is, is lazy. And the last hour is all about reading or watching and learning. I'm, very, I'm a night person, so that's when I really zone in. And that's probably why I can't sleep as well as I should. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair play. But I try and, the last hour, I try and uh, part of the process I'm going through now, I'm, I, I turn my phone off at least an hour before bed. So I read, I read a book or I watch something on television, which I know is more blue light, but it's, not, it's more easier to consume. Yeah. Um, what material item could you not live without? 
Material items I could yeah. not live without. Look, I'd like to see my phone. I'm trying to move away from that. Yeah, no. Um, material item that I could not live without. Right, is there any kind of physical product my or anything laptop. that's added a lot of value to your life? My laptop. Yeah. Because I, I, I use it for everything. Without my laptop, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't achieve my protein. I, I, I research on it. I write my notes. I do everything on my laptop. I even like watch Netflix and entertain myself yeah. as well. Nice. Um, what book, apart from yours, would you recommend to anyone? Uh, the Stoic, the the Daily Stoic. Oh, nice. Alex, 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 is it? Alex Holiday? Ryan Holiday. Ryan, Ryan Holiday, Holiday, sorry, yeah. yeah. yeah Absolutely brilliant. brilliant. Amazing. Uh, he's actually the one who's had that line of when he became a New York Times bestseller, it felt like nothing. Oh, right, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's... Well, no, yeah, he's... he's stoic, um, yeah. I love that book. I think it's, I think really, it's really good, absolutely yeah. brilliant. If you lost everything, um, you know, wealth, fame, et cetera, et cetera, but you still had all, all, all your skills, what business would you start today if you that's a yeah. good a mil, that's a billion dollar question <laughs> um look or like, I, or like how would you go about it kind of thing yeah excuse me my mindset right now is not in that zone so i don't know what the next new trends are yeah. however if i did was in that position i would go into absolute flight or fight or flight mode if you like i'd go and get out there start researching niches and seeing what the new growth areas are and really get under the belly of stuff and start doing that process of where I break everything down and try and see if I can do it better get, but I'm not in that zone at the moment I'm so in a different place um, so I won't I don't I can't really say which niche is there I could yeah. it, it could be something obvious where you know post-covid but I don't know I don't, I don't think it would be I think we're past that now I think you missed that boat it would be it'd be obviously something technical it'd be something online hmm. Um, but I don't know what niche it would be. In terms of how I would do it, I would absolutely just do what I did in the first instance. I would go in my everyday life and everything that I do in my day, I would stop and go, can I do that better? Ask all the awkward questions. Can I do that better? How can I make this more attractive to the consumer? What would I do if, what would it look like if I did this? And try and turn everything upside down and change the status quo on everything and anything. Hmm. Don't accept anything as it is today is the, the, the bad. It's going to be very difficult for anyone to come in up with anything unique, I think, these yeah. days. Very difficult. Not impossible. I'm sure there will be some absolute, you know, of course there's going to be some innovate, complete unique innovations. But everything is going to be just a, you know, slightly better evolving something. So I would, that would be where I'd go to. Nice. What quote or mantra do you live by? So, well, I've obviously, I'm going to say that one again. Um, I, I would say the one which is at the start of my book is, it, it's, it's slightly obvious, but it, I think it really does resonate with mm. me. It is, um, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, feed him, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. Look, it's, it's been used many a time, but I think it's very, resonates very well with this. I think, again, with me, I think you should always learn and teach yourself how yep. to do something and you can you know, believe in yourself. So I think that's, I think that's an important thing as a real core mantra for me. Amazing. And, and final question, uh, a bit cryptic, uh, a journey or destination? <laughs> journey. Hmm. 
Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Oliver, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute joy. Um, any Thanks, final Alan. final words of wisdom, parting advice for me, for the listeners, people um, that you speak to? No, um, just just buy my book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> buy the book, Bootstrap yeah. Your Life, Boots link in the video life. description, link in the show notes and all that jazz. But, and, but no, Ali, yeah. it's, been, it's been really enjoyable. You know, it's, uh, I've, I'm avid follower of your, of your, uh, your YouTube channel and yeah, just thing. keep doing your thing, please. Yeah, thanks for inviting us over. It's very gracious of you to have us in your, in your house with all the cameras and everything. Um, Pleasure. Chilling here. Um, where can people find more about you other than in the book? Olivercookson.com is where there's, a, there's links off there to a podcast, which would be a great starting point if, be, if they can put a list of a voice any longer. Um, obviously, links to the book on there. And it gives you a bit of a potted history of my life as well. Um, obviously, the book is the, is the main place to go. The main one. All right. Oliver, yeah. thank you very much. And thank you, Ali. Everyone, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. That's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to connect with Oliver or read Bootstrap Your Life, all of the relevant links are in the show notes slash video description. We're also still running our two-minute podcast survey to get your thoughts on the season so far and hear what you'd like to see in future episodes. That'll be linked below. So if you've got a spare two minutes to spare, a spare two minutes to spare, something like that, I'd love to read your thoughts there. Thank you very much for tuning in. And if you did enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to be notified when we release a new episode. Thanks for listening and catch you later.